I've just about had enough of you. I'm more than machine. A man made out of tears. I am at your disposal with 187 other languages along with their various dialects and subtongues. Dialects and subtongues. It's the best time of the week. It's time for another episode of 50 Years of Shit Robots with Matt Brown and Lord Robot Stephen Murray. You're basically the Lord Robot of this of our gang, am, aren't you? I am Lord of the Robots. <laughs> <laughs> now, on a recent episode, we were bemoaning the fact that uh, AI is taking over and it's going to be the end of mankind. And here you are this week, and you've been using it to try and find stuff out that's real to, to us, haven't you? Well, no, I'm, I have to because my students are going to use this. Yeah. You need to be I on need, the inside. I need to be on, on top of it. So... <laughs> What have you been asking the AIs this week, Stephen Murray? We were discussing when in science fiction did scientists become the villains. And this is because we've been watching a few films recently in the 50s where scientists are the protagonists. Yeah. And we've often remarked that that wouldn't be the case probably nowadays, would it? That the protagonist probably would be military or someone who has been in the military but uh, in the 50s, that wasn't the case, that scientists were basically seen as like inquiring, brilliant people who sort of like w- were worthy of being the heroes of the story. So uh, I, thought, I thought the point was when the atomic bomb came along. Okay. Uh, there is a, a very famous speech from Oppenheimer where he, he's, he looks completely drawn. He looks like the weight of the world is on his shoulders and he, he says that I am the destroyer of worlds. And it's really... Wrenching. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty. And to impress him, takes on his multi-armed form and says, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. But it's not. It's it's quite obvious that it, it was Frankenstein, that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, that was the point where scientists become the villains. And that lingered in science fiction. So do you think then that, that actually this period of the 1950s where scientists become the protagonists is sort of the... the that's the anomaly. That's yeah. sort of bucking uh, the trend. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So flying in the... I think it was because the 50s and the 60s, especially the 60s as well, were really um, optimistic times for mm. science. Because nothing really did come to fruition, it, it created hauntology, which is being haunted by a future we never got. <sighs> Yowzers. And, the, and it generally, the, you know, there was a whole... D- d- two generations generally of men and boys mm. that are just haunted by the fact we never got hover boots and a full meal and a pill <laughs> yeah we we are um we're, we're looking at a film this week colossus of new york and one of the stars of that film i noticed as i was as i was re- researching starred in a film i think in the 70s or a tv show called sea lab 2020 and you sort of think, I mean, that's hauntology, isn't it? Probably. No, science fiction kind of fulfilled what we wanted. We got the hover boots in, in Back to the Future. Yeah. It kind of sort of, it was like a 
It was like a painkiller for hauntology science fiction. It, mm. it, it suppressed it a little bit. But we were constantly told, what we didn't realise is we did have the future because these very sort of white-clad, science looking people would deliver milk every morning in silent electric-run vehicles. And we had Concorde, we had supersonic flight, we could land in New York before we took off. Mm-hmm. And we had hovercrafts and, and maglev, we had all of that. But I think we were greedy, Matt. We were, weren't we? Too greedy. All right, so should we, should we crack on with 1958 film... The Colossus of New York. Um, Opening with the most interesting and beautiful title sequence. Yeah, I've, I've got my <laughs> notes in front of me and I've written down austere titles. They're very austere titles. Aren't they? The music is... It feels like reminiscent of 30s silent horror film or something. Yeah, there's a reason why the the music was cut paired back is because right. there was a musician strike on. Really? Yeah. That's interesting because we are recording this in the midst of a writer's strike in We are indeed. in Hollywood. Yeah, so so no moogs in this this title music. No. No fancy science fiction films with early synthesizers. And it's essentially it's then just, just sort of like a, it's a buildings. You see, like like almost like um, drawings of buildings, isn't it? Are they that even was photographs? United Nations? But is that is that even a photograph or is it? A I drawing? think it is a photograph. Is it? On the one hand, it, I I think you could probably look at those titles as being quite stylish. Oh, it's a drawing. And on the other hand, you can look at those as being quite cheap. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I do. And this this odd thing about this film, and we could say that about every single film we look at in in this on this podcast. This is an odd one, but this one is an odd one. I it think. is an odd one, yeah. From the title sequence to the paired back dramatic music, yeah, not unenjoyable. I have to say, no. I, I I mean, this is coming hot off the heels of Aztec Mummy versus the Humanoid Robot. And so it was a lovely palette cleanse from that film, I thought. It was uh, directed, Colossus of New York was directed by Eugène Laurier, and Eugène is French, or was a French film director, who felt like he got typecast and directed a few films. Most of them were science fiction films, but then stopped directing films and actually was... Academy Award nominated folks for special effects work on the Krakatoa East of Java, Java. West of Java. Yeah. It's East of Java and it isn't East of Java. That was the controversy of that film. (laughs) (laughs) So so he has been called among the best art directors in French cinema. Who did he work for in in French cinema, wasn't it? Um... He worked with... Directors such as Jean Renoir. Jean Renoir, that's right. René Clair. Oh, wow. But also worked with Sam Fuller and Charlie Chaplin as well when he came to Hollywood in the 1940s. And, so and he directed The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which kickstarted the kaiju. So there is a, a lovely connection. The film was also produced by William Allen as well. And, and I think he is interesting because of some of the films that he produced which were films like The um, Creature from the Black Lagoon and Tarantula and quite a few sort of low-budget films that you might have heard of, I think. 
And it feels like The Colossus of New York does sort of sit in that, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, yeah, yeah. I just want to say that the film starred Ross Martin, Otto Kruger, Marla Powers, and, crucially, friend of the show, Ed Wolf, who <laughs> is the person in the robot suit. So the w- costume was quite interesting, because it was eight feet tall, it weighed 160 pounds, and was made from burlap, plastic, rubber, and fine chicken wire. Right. Inside there was batteries, cables, air tanks and oxygen tubes. Oh and it took Ed 40 minutes to climb in and out of his Colossus costume. Blimey. It does look an arduous wear, mm. doesn't it? But, but let's just quickly um, give a synopsis for, for anyone, and I'm assuming most people who might not have seen this film. Um, it's essentially about a, a brilliant scientist called Jeremy Spencer who is killed and his scientist father transplants his brain into an enormous cyborg so that he can continue his work um, uh, with non-hilarious, terrifying consequences. And then there's this, there's this whole playoff, really, between because there's another brother called uh, Henry Spencer and he's the engineer. So yeah. his father, um, William, he's a surgeon. So you've got a surgeon, an engineer, and Jeremy, who is going to solve the world's food problems. Yeah. With using machinery, ironically. Yes. The first um, shots uh, of the film are shots of actual robots, aren't they? Like Mm. robots on a production line doing things that, that Jeremy has sort of like, you know, created with his brother Henry. He's created these production lines that is going to solve solve world hunger. Um, but it was nice to see, I thought, actual real robots at the beginning of this. Yeah, yeah, that was cool. I did send you a link to a Tom Scott video. Oh, of... oh yes, you did, and I haven't watched it. <laughs> but I'll link to it in the show in the show notes so that we can all enjoy it's, it. It's jaw dropping. It's Is a it? giant warehouse that's like with you use using the usual uh, measurement system of football pitches. I think it's about six football pitches and it is a gigantic grid of robots picking up food, stacking it, ready to go. It's right. it's astonishing. Yeah. So we meet immediately in this film. We meet Jeremy, we meet Henry, we meet Anne, his wife, Billy and we meet Billy, <laughs> who my initial uh, comment were irritating kid. Because he is a yeah. bit irritating, isn't he? Not, not as irritating as some kids that we've met on well, our he's a bit. he's just whiny right from the get-go, isn't he? Because uh, he wants to watch a film and he, his, he wants his dad. And his dad is like being congratulated by his wife and brother on all of this great stuff. And the kid just can't deal with it. And, and the vast majority the of the film, his dad is dead. His dad is dead, killed by his son, as we will we will come to realise in a few minutes' time. So once again, we've got scientists as protagonists, or have we, in this film? Um, if I had a moustache, I'd twirl it. <laughs> so Jeremy has won the uh, Nobel, or not the Nobel Peace Prize, but an international peace prize, isn't he? But his father is, is, is there for the ceremony, he's talking to reporters. Reporters are really interested in, in Jeremy's work. And there's this, this kind of like little um, conversation between a journalist and Jeremy's father, who is a brain surgeon, about sort of variations of genius. And, and, he, and Jeremy's father says, 
there are three types of genius. There's the Machiavelli and Napoleon type. They use their genius for purely selfish purposes. They use them to promote their own needs and their own desires. And I'm very sorry to say that most people are in that first primitive level. Then, of course, there's a second level, and that is the people who work to satisfy the needs of their own families and their community. And then the third and highest level, where they work to satisfy the needs of all humanity. And I must say that my son Jeremy is in that third place, if you'll forgive a doting father. However, his father will soon turn him into a level one genius. By denying him feelings. <laughs> yes. Um, and so this is the point. We're about sort of five minutes into the film. And this is the point where the, the, the irritating kid kills his father. Oh, you are so harsh. <laughs> he's got, he's got a, like a toy plane that he's playing with and he, he sort of throws it and, it and the wind catches it and it goes off. And he's like, oh, somebody get my plane. And uh, so his dad runs off and uh, tries to get the plane and is, is mown down by a truck. And he's he's like he's the star in this, isn't he? Because he's got uh, an awful lot of uh, movies and TV under his belt by this point. The actor he's... who's playing Ross Martin, yes, Ross Martin, yeah. an awful lot. So this this is the point of the film where you got dead Jeremy, uh, and his son, his father basically like takes the body back to the um, the Spencer family estate, and the dad acts incredibly <laughs> suspiciously. Yeah. Dodgy. And with good reason. Um, I've just said he does what every grieving father does and creates a robot with his dead son's brain. <laughs> <laughs> Which is exactly what he does. <laughs> but the, what's, I think what was the thing that was really interesting for me in this film sort of happens around this point where you've got, you've got basically a debate in the film about science versus religion. Yes, he has conversations, doesn't he? Yeah. One character says that if you are, if you were to remove the brain from the person, then the brain would not be capable of humanity. Essentially, yeah. I suppose that's it, isn't it? And well, the, he's saying basically, you have to have the whole. You have to have the body yeah. and the brain before you can, you can have, you could be moral. Yes, and he talks about a soul, doesn't he? I think. Yes. In that. And the the father uh, poo poos this in the the highest poo pooing terms. And says that that's nonsense. But you know, a brilliant brain can be brilliant without without a soul or without a connection to the body. <laughs> I mean, there's like so much stuff in this, which is you know, he's setting himself up for a massive fall. This father, isn't he? He says that Jeremy's brain was unique, like Michelangelo, Darwin, Da Vinci. What if they could have continued their work after their body had died? Feels like at that point, that friend should be thinking, that's a bit of a red flag, isn't it? <laughs> you've, you've taken the body, your son's dead body, back. You're a brain surgeon. You've been acting suspiciously. And you're talking about a brain living on after a body dies. What you got in the cellar, William? <laughs> <laughs> but I thought this was interesting because you talked about, you've already talked about Frankenstein in this, in this episode. And that feels like, that feels quite Frankenstein-y. That whole yeah. religion versus science. It's kind of Frankenstein by William Shakespeare, yeah. written by an AI. <laughs> Starring Ed Wolf. Yes. <laughs> I but think the whole film is basically about loss, though, isn't it? Everything is about loss. 
the father loses, the brother loses, the wife loses, the son loses, and the the guy whose brain is inside the machine, he loses his body and his feelings and yeah. loses his morality. Yes, he does. Because, spoiler alert, everything that that friend said comes to pass, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, With extra bits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you've got it, the dad here who is sort of secretly building robot Jeremy in the in the sort of cellar. But you've also got Henry, the brother of Jeremy, basically rather creepily cracking on to his to Jeremy's wife at this point. Through through her son. Yeah. And it doesn't it feels like it's almost like before the funerals happened that he's yeah, yeah he's like, I, I want to look after you, Anne. I want to take care of you. You know, all of that sort of stuff. And just standing really close by her. And the other creepy thing about Henry, and I took against him immediately that I saw this, was that he likes a martini with two olives and an onion. It's either one (laughs) olive or three. We know the rule. I was not interested in Henry after this. I I thought he got all he deserved. And also he he says... (laughs) Sorry, he says... At one point he says to to the boy... He says uh, that he's got him a present. Oh, damn. <laughs> he, says, <laughs> he says the following. He says, want to look in my pockets and see what I've got for you? <laughs> it was incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> and also, both his him and his father gaslight poor old Anne. Yeah. I've got I mean, that exa- really gaslight her. Yeah, that ex- those exact words I've got written down. Yeah. Really awful man. And I've put the real the real monster. Yes. <laughs> Who is the real monster? Is it both of them? Yeah. They're both the real monster. Oh, and the kid as well, because the kid's irritating. <laughs> You've got it in for that kid, haven't you? <laughs> you totally got it in for that kid, yeah. Yeah, and so and so around this time we then see the the, the, the fruits of Father William's uh sort of Frankenstein creation. We see we see the Colossus of New York. We see Robot Jeremy. And, I mean, I just feel that they've... They, <laughs> they could have made him look like anything. Because yeah. initially he is a brain in a jar on a, on, a t- on a table, isn't he? And it is able to do calculations. The brain in the jar can do calculations. Yeah, yeah. So they could have made him look like anything. Couldn't, didn't have to be a person. But they've made him look absolutely terrifying. <laughs> I mean, properly, properly terrifying. And that weird pleated cape. Mm. Yeah, it's, the clothes are so odd, aren't they? They're very reminiscent of a H.G. Wells film, Things to Come. Okay. There's kind of outfits in that that look like that, but not as heavy. Yeah, he's got a weird sort of pleated cape on. His head is very Frankenstein-like, sort of flat-top yeah. head. He's got eyes that light up and can hypnotise. Is brain lights up as well his brain lights up yeah he's got enormous hands <laughs> they were huge <laughs> so massive and huge clumpy feet as well i mean he's just he's frank just imagine frankenstein with light bulbs for eyes and you got it and little grills underneath the eyes obviously for our hero inside to be able to see through yeah but i, I think the bit where they switch him on is was quite terrifying yes agreed Agree. There was lots of this that I thought was excellent. Yeah, yeah. But again, you'd think. I mean, I suppose that they're not going for mobility, are they? I suppose. 
Um, no, no. But his, he is he ha- is very restricted in his movements. Um, but again, well, you sort of think, why until would he, he goes walkabout in New York? <laughs> why would he? Why would they give him legs almost? So yeah, so Jeremy is not best pleased to be reincarnated, is he? In this oh, terrifying, God. terrifying form. But he does agree to carry on his work for he a does. short amount of time. Yeah, he's he's working for about a year, isn't he? And they're about to sort of release pub- publication of what he's been working on, when all of a sudden. <laughs> He hasn't, he's, it turns out he can see in the future. Yeah, where did that come from? I don't know. And right it sort on of his... doesn't, doesn't make any more... It doesn't go anywhere, really, does it? Because they could have done something with it, I think. They could have yeah. really done something with it. I think they could have said something like, without the boundaries of a body, my mind can spread further. Or, yeah, absolutely. You know, something like that. A couple of words would have led, lent credence to that. Yeah. I remember that I don't know what it whether it was a film or an episode of Twilight Zone or what, but I I remember seeing something as a kid where there was a, a a bloke who was in a coma on a hospital bed who basically could create um sort of atrocities and, and would Medusa only... Touch, Lee saw... Remick, uh, Richard Burton. I thought that's where this was gonna go. That because he basically he sees a, a, a sort of like a shipping accident. And I, I did wonder at that point whether he had created that. He wasn't just seeing it, whether he was creating it. You see, you could have easily done that in about 10 minutes of the film and that would completely and utterly make the rest of the film believable. Yeah. Because it doesn't really happen again, does it? I mean, he is able to then see where people are, like his brother at, at the, towards the end of the film has to try and escape because he's, he's cracked on with Anne too much. <laughs> Jeremy, he's, the robot, he's caught it. them in the garden. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, he, so Henry's terrified and runs away. But Jeremy, the robot, just knows where he is with his massive bubbling brain and his cape and his squishy. <laughs> and then the next bit is that he hypnotizes. He's be able to hypnotize people. Yeah. So uh, he hypnotizes his father to tell uh, Henry to meet it at a certain place mm. by the river, and then. Um, Jeremy walks along the riverbed, appears, uh, and then kills him yeah. with, his with his death eyes. ray eyes, <laughs> yeah. which is another surprise. Yeah, it is, isn't it? So, so he's constantly evolving, but there's not really any any satisfactory explanation of that, is no. there? He first of all can see the future, then he can know where everyone is, and then he can kill people <laughs> with his eyes. So, and I have to say that there was a slight disappointment for me from for, in seeing this film because I just imagined the Colossus of New York title sort of promised that there was going to be sort of a, a massive rampage in New York and there is a little bit of one. The, the sort of ending of the film is him going to the United Nations building and basically just, just killing people because he is of the opinion that it's much better to kill people than save people and try and save people. It's yeah, easier. that's a massive flip that is, again, <laughs> yeah. it goes from saving humanity to wanting to destroy humanity. Yeah. And I think he fully intends to kill his son as well because he doesn't need demand that they all turn up at the United Nations. Yes, he does, yeah. Everyone's got to be there. And then he, he, he sort of runs amok, kills maybe about three or four people. Well, he kills one woman twice. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then he like has a moment of clarity where he tells his son he's got to dis- disable him with the armpit switch. And then he falls off a balcony. And then his, his brain bleeds out. In the yeah, last, it was a bit gruesome that bit. Yeah, I thought that because the ending basically is like a, it's like a close up of the face, and I was sure that his eyes were going to light up again, and that but he was like, l- he's, he's, you know, you can't kill him. He did that all of that in front of a, a quote from the Bible, didn't he? Yeah, from Isaiah second chapter verse four. Thy shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up swords against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. And is that actually at the United Nations building? Yes, it's yeah. carved in the wall. So His father doesn't seem to show any contrition, oh mind, does he? God, it? yeah. That is <laughs> extraordinary, isn't it? What does he say at the end? He says something like, I only wish that heaven and Jeremy could forgive me for what I did. And then he sort of like, he's like, oh, and, then, and then he walks off into the United Nations. You think, come on, mate, you've just blooming well, effectively, you're a murderer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you've just created a machine that has killed like half a dozen people. But, well, you know, well, you live and learn, don't you? That feels like that's what he's saying at the end. He's been butchering corpses. Yeah. I yes, think I, I mean, that alone is like a prison sentence, isn't it? Yeah. You it can't is. interfere with corpses. That's that's no. not on. Un- unless you've got a little card in your wallet. <laughs> what, you think he's got a donor card? Yeah. <laughs> Please save my brain. <laughs> Please put my brain into a robot after I die. Mm. I think I might have found a reason why there's some psychic stuff in it. Okay. Because the, uh, the screenplay was written by Thelma Schnee, who would go on to become a, a parapsychologist. Interesting. What is a parapsychologist? Uh, a study of alleged psychic phenomenon and other paranormal claims. Okay. Near-death experiences. Very interesting. And stuff. Well, and, and a, I suppose a slight tenuous callback to Aztec Mummy and Humanoid Robot, which has past lives in that, doesn't it? It has a sort of su- like, I, like a parapsychological I, element. I just don't want to go back. Don't want to go back there. No, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> So let's rate uh, G- Robot Jeremy. What did you think? On the whole kind of moral side of it and uh, the way that that's written and the whole thing of being about loss and the look of the film, I think um, that for the robot, it's still a bit of shit. But mm. I-, I would give it about four or five. Yeah, I, th- I completely agree. I don't think it m- meets our threshold of of not being shit. But I think that it's interesting... And I think it's terrifying, certainly much better than <laughs> the Aztec mummy versus the humanoid robot, which had a, again, had a human inside a robot. So this is like continuing that as well. And this there's, is much better than that. But They were much, much better. And yeah. there's also a little element of Robocop in this. Yes. There's a lot of moralising in ro- Robocop and, yeah. and pondering about, the, the, about what it is to be human. Yeah. It feels like almost every film where we've had a cyborg as a character, you get that sort of, you do have that morality. I remember sort of thinking of like Wizard of Oz, you've got a bit of that in that, haven't you? You do, yeah. Um, wants to have a heart. Yeah, exactly. So I think that it feels like that, that when there's a cyborg involved, you'll always have that element of Frankenstein-ness to it. Yeah. 
Frankenstein as if it was written by Shakespeare. So that is it from the 1950s. That is it from the Colossus of New York and from us. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>